love. We can't live without it. We spend all of our life looking for it, longing for it, trying to imagine it. Um, poets pen it. Artists seem to try to paint it. Musicians sing about it. Hollywood does its best, though I think a very poor job portray it in the movies. Uh, and really, what, what is love? Sometimes we're going to talk about loving local. I think we need to take a step backward before we can really go forward. And we did that a little bit last week in really learning how to love ourselves. And we talked about that. But also, I want to take just a step backward before we, again, this week we're going to take a step forward in understanding what love is. And because uh, I think it's a little bit of a, again, a different, uh, it depends on the artist. Uh, it's very subjective in a lot of people's minds. In fact, a group of professionals ask a, a question, a simple question to to four-year-olds through eight-year-olds, ask them, what does love mean? Simple question. You go home and you ask your kids, ask them, what does love mean? And see what kind of answers you get. Here's a few samples from the, from the study. Love is when, this is a five-year-old Carl, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. That's what love is. And it may be, that may be accurate. I don't know. Here's what Chrissy said, age six. Love is when you go out to eat and you give somebody most of your French fries without making them give any uh, of theirs. So I think that's pretty good. A seven-year-old said it like this. Love is when you tell a guy uh, you like his shirt and he wears it every day. And so be careful what you tell the guy. All right. And then Marianne at age four said, love is when your puppy licks you in the face even after you've left him alone all day long. And so, you know, depicting out what love is in your mind uh, is something that a, a child is even doing. But what is love? Again, you go around the world, you ask the religions of the world, you're going to get different responses. If you even look into the different faiths, uh, you're going to get a different image, if you will. Buddhism, its very founder, Gautama Buddha, uh, actually left his wife and his children, his family, to go out and to find inner peace. Now, I don't know that that's a great depiction of what love should look like. When you leave your family and you go out and you, you're looking for peace. Hinduism, when you actually pull back the layers of the Hindu faith, when you look at what love is, it really looks like some kind of pity party uh, in some kind of form or fashion. So I don't know that that's the image. When you look at Islam, you really kind of hear more of a conditional kind of love, a, a temporary kind of love, a that if you do this, then you're loved. You even ask any Muslim to this day, are you going to heaven when you die, or paradise, or whatever they want to call it? And they will say, I don't know if Allah wills. They literally live their entire life without any assurance or hope of, uh, of God accepting them and embracing them in an unconditional format. And that's really a sad thing. And, but when you come to the Christian faith, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you're going to find that the Christian faith expresses a father-like love that is unconditional and embraces. So again, if we're going to talk about love, loving local as our theme, as our message series that we're in now, if we're going to talk about that, then we got to understand what love is, what it looks like, smells like, tastes like when we're out there so we can know how to express that. And so before we get into that, I think we need to look at probably one of the greatest examples, one of the most familiar stories, if you will, and, and Luke chapter 10 be finding that, uh, where Jesus depicts love where he is, has this encounter, again, with this lawyer. A different lawyer than last week. If you remember, if you were here last week, that was from Mark chapter 22. Mark 22 and, excuse me, Matthew 22 and Mark 12 share a similar story. 
in the Synoptic Gospels. They're, they're actually identical accounts, just maybe uh, a little bit more fuller detail from one, from one Gospel to the next. But Luke's is a different one. Even though it's a lawyer, even though it's the same answer, it's different because you can just tell a couple of things just to kind of help jump off the page. In last week's message in Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked a question, he was asked a different question. What was the greatest commandment? In this situation, he's asked, how do I inherit eternal life? Different question. And also the way Jesus responded was different. In last week's message, Jesus was forthright, came out with an answer. This time, we're going to find it in the tradition of Jesus' fashion. He asked a question, or he's asked a question, and he gives a question back. So we know that these are two different accounts, and then plus what Jesus adds uh, to the text as well uh, also gives a, a more fuller picture of it. So let's look at this. These are the anchors of the entire series. If we're going to do well, from the beginning of January, we have been studying God's directional ways for us, uh, the Ten Commandments, and, and how that inter, interconnects with the greatest commandment of all, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we're going to continue on with that same theme in this series and knowing what love looks like because life doesn't flow from the law, it flows from love. And we talked about that again last week. But let's look at Matthew 20, or Matthew 10, verse, excuse me, Luke 10, verse 25. I'll get it straight here in a moment. All right, Luke 10, verse 25, it says this, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Sounds like, again, similar to last week's scenario, but different. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? So he turns around and asks him a question with his question. How do you read it? And this is what the lawyer said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. He says everything is within you, everything that makes up you, inside and outside, externally and internally, needs to be in this mad love relationship with God. And if you don't have that, then you're missing it. All right, number one thing. But he also said, and your neighbor as yourself. They're continuing that, that, that same verb of love, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Now I want you to understand the impact, the magnitude of this statement of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. This one command is stated more times in the Bible than any other command. In fact, it's mentioned ten different times. It's mentioned in James, it's mentioned in Galatians, it's mentioned in Romans, it's mentioned in, in the Gospels multiple times. It's mentioned all the way back in Leviticus. More times than any other command, we are told to love our neighbor. So, if that's so important from the old to the new, from the beginning to the end, that we're told to do that, let's really understand what that is and try to unpack that. Well, it's a good thing that we're asking that question because that's the exact same question this lawyer turns around. Once Jesus said, yeah, you're on the right track, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. All right? Now verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Verse 29. Who is my neighbor? Think about it for a moment. Who's your neighbor? Who, who, who is it in your life, in your world? Now again, don't just get locked in on the traditional answer. That's why I want to open up our eyes a little bit today to what it is, who our neighbor is, so that we can know who we're going to love out there. Now, if you think about love, think about it as throwing this rock into the pond. All right, the pond's nice and smooth. You throw the rock out there. 
the ripple effect of love really should be the ripple effect of love in our own lives. So if you think about it like this, it doesn't mean that the, it, 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 it starts in one space, but it doesn't end, okay? First of all, you think about it in concentric circles, all right? That who you're going to love most without even being instructed is your immediate family. You married them. You gave birth to them. You're raising them. You're spending thousands of dollars to give them the best life they could possibly have on planet Earth. And here it is. You love them. That's your immediate, immediate family, all right? You don't need a whole lot of instruction. If you do, we'll talk about that on another day, okay? Uh, the next layer of love goes out to our extended family and our close friends. And if you're a family member, you might think, hey, I need to be in front of my close friends. But sometimes if, I, you know, if the family member is the way some of them are, you might love your friends more than you love your, uh, your, 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 immediate, your, your extended family. But there's this kind of love that you have with close friends. There's a kind of love you have with your extended family. And uh, you, you remember important things. You remember important dates. You, you go to graduations and you go to certain ceremonies because you love them. That's why you do that. But then there's another layer out there that we might need a little bit more instruction on. Those are our acquaintances. Those are our neighbors. Now, the reason I say that is because this is the layer that pretty much most people's ripples end. All right? And Jesus is saying, after you love me first and foremost, heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you need to be thinking about loving even as far out as your neighbors, even as the world, and we're, that's the last circle. And we're not even going to talk about the world today. But it really, it should ripple all the way out to the people that are acquaintances, that are neighbors. Now, so that, again, still begs the question that the lawyer asked Jesus. Who's my neighbor? Can I choose who my neighbors are? Not really. You can choose your your, your family sometimes, but you can't choose your neighbors. You, you, you may not even know your neighbors that well. Uh, so how can I love them? What does love look like? Well, I want to talk about four neighborhoods that are probably in everybody's world, in, in everybody's circle in this room today. You might think, hold it, I have one neighborhood. I don't have four homes, I have one home. Well, that's one level of neighborhood, okay? Let's talk about that level because that's probably the obvious. Let's talk about Captain Obvious here, okay? Ge geographical neighborhoods is one level of neighborhood, okay, that you have. And you, you'll want to take notes today if you have a bulletin guide. It's, just flip it over. There's notes on the back because there's going to be a whole lot I'm going to ask you actually to interact with me uh, on this message all along the way. So geographically, that's a place and a point on a compass on a map. You are on a street. You live in a town. You have a zip code. You have a subdivision, you have POA dues, you have all those elements that make up your geographical neighborhood, all right? Now, I want you to think about it like this, and this would be a good activity for you to do when you get home as a family, to put out a piece of paper and to say, who are our geographical neighbors? Draw your house in the middle, and then draw around your house, other houses, and see how many you can, how many neighbors you really know, all right? Now, if you live out in the boondocks or out in the woods, then that makes it a little bit more easy, maybe. Maybe a little bit further apart between your neighbors. But think about it. Who would you go to in a case of an emergency? Who would you, those would be your geographical neighbors. Now, think about it in three categories. How well do you know them? Do you know their names? A. Do you know their, their relevant information? What is it that they're, where they work, where their hobbies are? I got this from a, a book that we recently read, some of our staff, called The Art of Neighboring. 
All right. And then the third level is that in depth. Talk about do you really know them? Do you know them deeply? Do you know their spiritual beliefs? Do you know their story? Do you know their fears? Do you know what's really going on in their life? See, in America today, we don't do a good job about neighboring our geographical neighbors. Think about it. when I grew up, it was one way, and today it is a totally different way. I grew up in a in, in a town that was not a subdivision. There was no POA dues. We just everybody played out in the front yard or out in the street, and everybody knew everyone. And it was just that that that, that was the way you lived your life. It was out in front of everyone, good or bad or indifferent, whatever that may look like. Today it's different. I don't know about you, but I pull up to a to a garage door that opens at a at a push of a button. I pull into that garage, and nearly before I get out of that car, I'm pushing the garage button again, and it's closing behind me. I don't live out in my front yard. I live in my backyard. I don't have a front porch. I have a back patio. I no longer have a chain-link fence that I share from the garden across the fence to the neighbor, and now I have a privacy fence. And so literally, I could cocoon myself in and never engage and have a conversation with my neighbor if I so choose, or if my neighbor so choose not to engage me. So geographically, it's becoming a little bit more difficult. In fact, only 1%, according to this, this book, The Art of Neighboring, only 1% of us will actually know level three of our neighbors around us. Think about it like that. Put yourself to your own test. Geographically, how do you, well, do you know your neighbors? Because if you don't know them, you can't love them. Number two, this is maybe a new one in our, in our, in our, in our day and age, and that's the virtual neighbors that we have. These are our Facebook friends, our LinkedIn friends, our Twitter followers, or the people that we follow. These are the people that are out there. And if you don't know what Twitter is, then you probably don't have any Pinterest. Uh, LinkedIn, again, all these chat rooms, games. Uh, there's this internet gaming back and forth. We're playing games with people that we don't even really fully know. We just know them on a level, on a very surface level. Now think about it like this. We actually may know the person we're playing an internet game with better than we know our neighbor who lives geographically close to us. That's the different world in which we live. It's a very changing, morphing kind of world in which we live. In fact, a book that was written a few years ago by uh, a couple of doctors called Connected came out and said that although they they randomly surveyed 3,000 Americans, they asked them, even though they were fully socially media connected with their friends, He said, how many of you could share your heart at a heart level with a friend out there? He said, how many friends do you have? Only the average American had four friends that they could share their life with. 12%. 12% said they didn't have anybody they could open up with. Anybody. Think about it. Virtually, take your Facebook account and become your news feed as your prayer list. Make it your, your friend list, your prayer list. Maybe tomorrow you pray for the A's. Maybe Tuesday you pray for the B's. You just work through that list and begin to engage your neighbors, your old friends from high school and so forth, all right? Commerce is another neighborhood that you live in and I live in. We shop at the same stores. We eat the same restaurants. We see the same waiters and waitresses sometimes. We even have the same mechanics some of the times. We see them. We talk to them at levels very shallow. But how can I engage them? and love them on a more intimate level. Uh, think about it, your school friends, your classmates, your teachers, the people that you work with. But there's another neighborhood out there. This is a neighborhood I'm going to call the affinity neighbors. These are the people that you have a, a common ground with. You probably wouldn't have met them any other way had it not been for this common ground. 
It could be anything out there. It could be the, your, your hobbies. It could be where you exercise. I've got some peeps of the place here in this room right now of, of the place that I exercise at. And so wherever you sweat, where you like to sweat, that may be some friends that you have there. I actually met a guy recently at the dog park of all places. Uh, he has a similar breed as the dog that we have. His name is Marcus, and we share this common ground now. Now I see him at the dog park, and I'm getting to know Marcus. I know now more about Marcus than I would have ever known about Marcus had it not been for having a similar dog. Think about it, affinities that you have. Now, on your, on your worship guide today, there's, some, there's, a, there's this diagram over in the bottom right-hand corner. All right, there's this man, and you've got all these neighborhoods that you're connected to. Now, here's your homework assignment. You can do it at any point during this message. Is I want you to be thinking of three different people in these neighborhoods that you live in on a regular basis that you can start loving more actively. If you're going to love somebody as Christ tells us to, love your neighbor as you love yourself, these are our neighbors. All right? So think about it. Who is it in your these neighborhoods, and how can you reach out and start loving them? That brings the next question to the table. First question is, who's your neighbor? The second question is, how do you love your neighbor? How do you really show love? Well, Jesus turns around to go back to our text, and he continues on talking to this lawyer, and he tells him a story. Jesus is good about telling stories 35 different times. He tells a parable. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And this time he tells probably one of the most famous of all the stories that Jesus ever told, the story of the Good Samaritan. So for review, let's go back and let's read it. Beginning in verse 30, just picking up where we left off. So who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, verse 30, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now, I have to believe that they wanted him fully dead, but they thought he would bleed out. He would finish his life laying there beside the road. And again, this is a story form. It's not a real actual story, but Jesus is teaching a tremendous principle for us here that we need to unpack. And so he's half dead, and chance the priest was going down and, uh, on the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest saw him. He passed by on the other side. So likewise, the Levite who came to the same place, and it passed by on the other side. Okay, now there's a third guy. But the Samaritan, Samaritans and Jews hate each other. The, the Jews called the Samaritans half-dogs. So they literally could not stand it. There were racial slurs against one another. And the Samaritan sees this Jewish man laying on the side of the road. He saw him, and he had compassion on him. We'll come back to that. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him and the next day he took him uh, he took out two denarii and he gave it to the innkeeper uh, saying take care of him whatever you spend i will repay you when i come back which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor that fell among uh, the man who fell among the robbers and he said the lawyer said to him the one who showed mercy and jesus said you Go and do likewise. So not only does he define who the neighbor is, but he even says, now listen, you go and do the same thing. He gives a point of application. 
I want to give us three points of application. If we're going to love our neighbors, how do we love our neighbors? And Jesus tells us this right here in this text. Number one thing we've got to have, we're going to love our neighbors, love local, we've got to have a soft heart. Soft hearts are important. The two most likely people, the two most predictably likely people to stop and to help out this poor beaten up man half dead on the side of the road were the very two people who didn't cross the road, who wouldn't stoop down and wouldn't help the person. You would think a priest, you would think a Levite who was a, who was a very religiously dedicated individual, you would think the most religious dedicated individuals would be the ones who would stoop down and help somebody, but it wasn't. It was the Samaritan who walked across the street, who stooped down, who picked him up, who had the soft heart, who was willing to go in and help him. See, there are two mental questions that were going on. The two men, the Levites and the priests, they were asking, if I help this man, what will happen to me? I'll be late to my appointment. I'll get dirty. My new tunic will have blood stains on it. What will I do? They were thinking of themselves. The Samaritan, however, had another question going on in his mind. He says, if I don't help this man, what will happen to him? Two totally different frames of reference. What is the single, the single ingredient between these two different responses of these three different men? It is found right there in the verse, and I stopped and paused on it. Verse 33, and he had compassion. Having compassion is extremely important to the host. See, seeing the needs out there are not the same thing as meeting the needs. You can see all manner of injustice and you can be moved deeply, but if you don't have a soft heart, if you aren't willing to get down, then listen, compassion or having awareness is not going to do any good. It means nothing. It's an interesting note to make. That every time in the gospel that the word compassion is used, it is either used from the lips of Jesus or used about Jesus. Every time in the gospel, compassion is attached or comes from Jesus Christ. He had compassion over the self-righteous believers. He had compassion over children. He had compassion over the sick. He had compassion over the cities that were lost and without Him. Listen, what we need today is not greater awareness. We need greater compassion. Fewer excuses. Heard the story like said like this of four different people. These people's names were everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. Listen to this story. And there was an important job that had to be done, and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about it because everybody it was everybody's job and everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody blamed somebody that nobody did what anybody could do. We have all manner of excuses to why we won't get our hands dirty. Listen, until compassion becomes a part of us, active love will not be there. Soft hearts. Number two, working hands. If you go on, you find in verse 34 that he went to him. He didn't delegate it. He didn't put it on to somebody else. He didn't pass the buck. He didn't do anything. He went to him and he bound up his wounds. 
He went to him and he poured out the oil and the wine. He went to him, he picked him up and he put him on his, on his transport. He went to him and he took care of him. All that in verse 34. This man was fully and completely engaged in the situation. He had working hands. Now again, I must emphasize, this was a Samaritan. This was a Samaritan going to a Jew who was half dead on the side of the road. He had all the reason to spit on his body and to keep walking. Socioeconomically, he had all the reason to say, listen, I don't owe you anything. In fact, you all have dissed my people for so long. Shame on you and ripped them off. Taking any last stitch of clothing from him. But he didn't. There's two things we need to understand about working hands. Serving moves me beyond my comfort zone. Actively loving people moves me beyond my comfort zone. This was beyond this man's comfort zone. He was not a doctor. He did not. He had not vowed a Hippocratic oath that he would help out. No, not at all. This man was fully invested because he was moved with compassion. See, so many times we think that the beggar on the side of the street with the cardboard sign that says, I'm hungry, I need food, that we give him $10, it soothes our consciousness, we go on to eat a $20 meal. In reality, what we need is is, is, a, is a deeper heart than soothing our conscience. We need to go to, to, to the person that we work with that just found out they have an incurable disease and we need to love them actively. We need to go to the parent who's, on our, who's in our affinity neighborhood and because our kids are on the same ball team and, and, and you just found out that he, she is in a divorce and they're having to juggle job and getting kids to and fro and you step up and love them and say, hey, let me bring your kids home. You go home and and you take a break. In loving, actively involved in people's lives. Albert Schweitzer, a French missionary doctor to Africa, said it like this, life becomes harder for us when we live for others, but it also becomes richer and happier. Serving causes us to be involved on a personal level. Notice again that he bound up the wound. The who, the what, the when, the where of our ministry in people's lives is us expressing love in their lives. He bound up the wounds. Number three, if we're going to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, if we're going we're gonna to live like the good Samaritan, then we've got to have a softened heart. Maybe our prayer today is, God, give me, give me a heart for my neighborhood. And then we've got to be willing to get our hands a little dirty. But thirdly, we've got to open our wallets. And you're not going to want to start at open wallets because you're going to already right now be puckering up a little bit. But if you have a softened heart, if you've fully invested yourself in a ministry into someone else's life, you're going to find yourself with a greater willingness to become a lifestyle, generous individual. If you don't remember generosity, we talked about it last week. Loving local, loving our neighbors is giving of ourselves generously. Notice what he said here, verse 35. And the next day, after he'd done all of that, poured out all of his wine, taken care of all of his, his dressings, made sure he made it through the night, the next day he took two denarii and he gave it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when he comes back. Now here, just give me this into perspective. Two denarii would be equivalent of two days' work of labor. Okay, One denarii, one day's work of labor. So I want you to do this. Do this in your head. Do it on a piece of paper. I want you to figure out what you get paid annually. 
Then I want you to figure out what you get paid monthly and what you get paid daily in your salary. I want you to break that down. And then I want, to, I want you to see, are you willing to be that generous to take two days' worth of your paycheck and to just pour it into someone else's life? Because here's one of the things you've got to learn about real life and real ministry and real love is ministry that costs nothing, it accomplishes nothing. That's just a good life principle. Ministry that costs nothing, accomplishes nothing. This is real and it costs. To do what we want to do here and around the world, costs. It costs our church, it costs you, it costs us. Let me just give you a couple of things. Of what ministry through your church, if Grace Point is your church, what we're able to do. $84 a day is what it costs to keep a missionary alive and well on the mission field. People that you, again, you don't know, you don't see, but once every three years, but yet you're helping with that. It costs $4,000 a day just to keep all the ministries of our church going, both here in Northwest Arkansas and around the world. Let me give you a couple examples of that one. Whenever you look at last Christmas season, we helped 14 girls out of slavery. Sex trafficking. 14 because of your generous giving. Listen, this is, if nothing else, this message today is fanning the flame. I already know we're a generous church. I already know that we're, we're a loving church. I just want to fan the flame. For others, I want to start a flame. I want to start a flame in your heart. That'll soften it a little bit, tenderize it a little bit. That'll open it up a little bit. That you'll be able to get your, your hands a little bloody and a little messy and, and a little nasty. You don't mind going home with, with throw up from the nursery because you were just loving a baby. You don't mind that because that's just a part of loving well. I got a letter this past week. I was literally walking out the door on Thursday afternoon. Checked my mailbox one last time. Got this letter from the Arkansas Baptist Children's Home, of which is one of the major organizations that we support. This letter says that we are in the top 100. We're actually 43, or in the top 40, 43 actually, uh, in the state among 1,800 churches in supporting the Arkansas Baptist Children's Home. Now, what do they do? They care for 300 children through six residential homes throughout the state. They have boys' ranches. They have maternity centers. They have a crisis pregnancy centers. They help with counseling and families that are, that are struggling to make it. Over 2,200 counseling sessions and seven counseling centers. Our church, your church, your giving has helped make that happen. So again, fan the flame or start a flame. I don't know. You're going to have to determine where you're at. But I want us to understand this. Tremendous impact comes when we learn to love locally. Loving our neighbor. We love ourselves. I like this statement. When I spin it, what I spent, I lost. What I possessed, I left to others. What I gave away remains with me. You know, in 1800s, uh, a British Parliament uh, figure was going to Scotland to give a speech. You might uh, know his name. You might have been familiar with uh, Churchill's father. Uh, as he was, uh, Sir Randolph Churchill was going to Scotland to to deliver a speech and in his little horse and buggy. He got caught in the, in the mud and the muck of, of, of Scottish wetlands. And, and there was a man, a, a boy, who came along beside him and his big oxen in his cart, and he helped pull Randolph Churchill back to, back to the dry ground. 
Churchill reached in his pocket and wanted to pay the boy for his time and his, and his trouble. And he said, no, I'm just loving my neighbor. That was literally his statement, just loving my neighbor. He said, no, seriously, I, I've got the money. I can help you out. I want to pay you for what you've just done. He said, no. He said, I, I can't take your money. My, my parents wouldn't like it, and I'm just not trained that way. And said, well, please, tell me, what do you want to do when you grow up? So this parliamentarian just engages in a conversation with him. He says, what do you want to do when you grow up? He says, I'd like to be a doctor. But he said, the reality, he said, my, my family's a farming family, and I'll probably be a farmer just like them. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, Alexander Fleming was his name. He said, I'll make sure you're a doctor. And so he did. He made sure that this boy was able to get out of that farming community and become a doctor. Fifty years later, fast forward, and you find Winston Churchill on his deathbed in the hospital. The British country would need Winston Churchill during World War II. And it wasn't Fleming that came to his side, but it was a, a fingerprint of Fleming that came to his side. See, he had pneumonia, and there was a new drug that Alexander Fleming had introduced on the scene, penicillin. And they injected it in, in Churchill, and Churchill lived another day and lived to be one of the greatest war hero, heroes of World War II. It started when a little boy, Alexander Fleming, showed love to a neighbor and expected nothing in return. It started with a father, it ended with a son, and it ended up saving a nation. You and I don't know. We don't know what little snot-nosed kid we're teaching over here. Maybe the next president of the United States. We don't know when we're holding a baby what that baby might do. Who are you loving? How are you loving your neighbors? During this time, the band's going to sing. We're just going to sing over you. You can respond however you want. You want to stand and sing? Stand and sing. But I encourage you to take that sheet of paper out. I want you to start thinking of your neighbors. I want you to start naming them. I want you to start thinking of ways that you can engage your neighbors this week in the four neighborhoods that you live in. Father God, open our eyes, but also soften our hearts. Let's be willing to get our hands dirty. Open our wallets if need be, Lord, so we can make a difference in this world for all eternity.